Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chavla, and the guest joining me today is a star geopolitical economist, the CEO and head of research at Rosa Rubini Associates, an academic that teaches at LSE, Bocconi, and City University. Joining me from London is Brunella Rosa. Thank you so much for being on the show. Really excited to speak with you. Thank you, Manas. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Definitely. So, so the way this sort of the global macroeconomic landscape is looking right now, I mean, I think even though this took a lot of rescheduling, I don't think we could be having this discussion at a better time. We're, you know, we're just coming off the back of a very fascinating G20 summit this weekend, where the heels of major announcements at COP. Uh, and Brunello, I'm telling you, I mean, what, what does this sort of tell you, these Legion summits, about uh, a bit about the sort of macroeconomic backdrop uh, and how they're shaping the business and financial environment of the day? Well, first of all, I would say it's a very good thing that these meetings are taking place. Most of these things have happened in a virtual environment for so long that these world, leader, world leaders really couldn't meet. And when these people don't meet, actually not much progress happens. Um, and instead, lots of progress needs to happen on a number of fronts. Just think about the minimum corporate tax rate agreements that have been mm. you know, somehow in progress for years now, or the various commitments on climate, or on the vaccine distributions, all the things that have been on the agendas of these very important meetings needed to make lots of progress. And until there is some, you know, physical contact among these people that can really look each other in the eyes and decide what's best, it generally doesn't really happen. So first of all, it's very good that these meetings are taking place. In terms of Actual results, we also know that is always a work in progress. It's never that one meeting finds a solution for everything. They just, you know, it's just one further step towards the solution of the problem that seems to be emerging or the most mm. pressing at the moment. I was mentioning before the minimum corporate tax rate. I mean, it started, well, first of all, years ago as a concept, stay there forever. Then somehow, uh, the G7 managed to adopt it in, uh, um, in you know, a few months ago. Uh, and then, you know, some people said, uh, what, what's the matter if only seven countries agree on that? But mm. we thought, wait a minute, it's the beginning. It's, a pro- it's always a process. And it's important that the, the largest the seven economies in the world agree on that because eventually something, happen- uh, something else will happen. Other countries will adopt it. So from G7, we went to G20. From G20, we will go to OECD, which is 38 countries. Mm. Once it's 38, then you start having quite a meaningful chunk of the global economy, and little by little, unless you adhere to these kind of standards, then you're left out. So it's always important these meetings take place. I know people tend to be skeptical. People think they're useless. They never reach a result. But, you know, unless these people talk, and try to make agreements, agreements don't happen. Yeah. In fact, the fact that China and, and, and India effectively were not um, always present uh, uh, in China, for example, didn't participate in any of the two meetings in person, but only mm-hmm. by video links and so on, tells you that something will be missing, especially mm-hmm. the COP26 climate uh, commitments without China are basically meaningless in today's world. But then it's all interconnected. Mm. The US has started with uh, Biden, a new phase in which, uh, sorry, with Trump and Biden somehow adopted a phase in which is either with me or against me. So either with, with the US or with China. And uh, then countries have to choose, but this mm. is a very uncomfortable position to be with. But then you cannot be so divisive in such an, in, in so many fronts, including technologies and uh, 5G adoption and whatever not, and then asking China sitting on the table to agree with all other countries on big global issues at a time in which you are accusing China of being responsible for the pandemic. You cannot have both. Mm. Uh, so if you want China to be part of these global discussions, then you need to be able to have it at the table. So that's why I'm saying um, 
having meetings is important when somebody is not at the table is always a loss for the international community uh, because it means the progress won't be made. And finally, if I may, on the COP26, it's very important that these climate meetings takes place, the commitments are made. But think about it. If we started to do all the right things now, now everybody does the right things. Now, every country, every nation, every individual, the first effects may be felt in 30 years. The first effects of our actions now. So this tells you how complicated that matter is. And in 30 years, you know, is a geological era in political terms, in the macroeconomic terms, and so on. But climate is nothing, it's like uh, mapping the fingers. But in, in this, that's why it's so difficult to make commitments because the effects of those decisions that have a cost today will be felt 30 years down the line. The, the benefits are not going to be right by the politicians of, that made today's decision and asked the prices to be paid today. So you understand how complicated the situation mm. is. Nonetheless, it's the right thing to do. There's nothing else we can do. And I understand why the greater Thunbergs of the world are angry and say, look, we're wasting time. Because if we don't uh, act, we are already late, and that's actually true. I mean, if, as I said, we should have started this discussion 30 years ago mm. in order to start having the first benefits today. Instead, we wasted 30 years. I was one of the few people that could see this discussion starting again 30 years ago when I was at uni. Uh, my professor at the time uh, taught political economy and environmental economics. And uh, at the time, it seemed like exoteric. Why would anyone study environmental economics? It took 30 years to become something that came on the political mm. agenda. Right. So that's what I'm saying. It's a very, very long process. Right. This, right. It needs to be done by step. These meetings are absolutely crucial to progress these agendas. Right. And I'm totally with you on that, that point about sort of upwards, but even if there was a sort of marginal incremental change, I remember once the, the sort of corporate tax rate thing was talked about in the G7, the FT, the Bloomberg had scathing critiques of, you know, this is only adopted by seven countries. And then obviously there's going to be capital arbitrage and they're going to move into tax havens, but Absolutely. it's a gradual process. And that's how, you know, that, that, that's, it, it took, like you said, 25, 30 years to move to 2015 in Paris as well. And it'll take perhaps another, you know, maybe decade or so to move to where we want to be. Um, and, and, and that's all the more reason to move there faster. Crises um, tend to catalyze the fast decision. That's mm. the unfortunate case. Mm. The only good aspect, if you want, of crisis, that only in a crisis you manage, you know, think about the vaccines. This mRNA vaccine has been ready for God knows how long. Yeah. It's just being so untested, um, nobody there to try in normal conditions because people would normally refuse it. Right. Then you have a crisis big enough. You say, look, it's the only thing we got. We need yeah. to use it. Let's try. Let's give it a try. And eventually somehow it worked. So it always tends to be this case that solutions are ready mm. way before mm. they are actually needed until they are needed. They're somehow magically they appear. Let me make you another example. I know mm. it's something you won't like to discuss. And I know it's a controversial thing. And Go for it. And that, and, and that makes it <laughs> even more better. Interesting. Um, think about central bank digital currencies. We'll explain maybe a little bit more in detail what they are. But think mm -hmm. about this. If you really get rid of all the cash in the economy and you only have an electronic wallet, mm -hmm. that means that... Um, if I impose an, a very negative deposit rate, mm. so the rate you pay, the price you pay to keep your money in the bank account, which today is minus 75 basis points at most in Switzerland, okay? Why is that? Because this is larger, you can value your deposit in cash, you keep the cash at home or in whatever storage place, and that's the only arbitrage you have to do. But if cash disappears and you only have electronic currencies, then you can charge very, very negative interest rates, minus five, minus 6%, which mm. 
which seems unconceivable today, might be the tool of the future. Now think about this. The next, those crises have been so recently, those crises have been mm -hmm. so by asset purchases, QE as it's called. Yeah. Now, you can't do more QE. I mean, virtually central banks have bought whatever they could. Okay. In Japan, they bought real estate, they bought equities, everything. Yeah. You need to go more negative interest rates. The only way of doing that is if introduce uh, central bank digital currencies. So that's the discussion now. The crisis that will require the measure is not there yet, but eventually when it will appear on the horizon, guess what? Mm -hmm. They will have the, the solution at hand, okay? So the same way they got the mRNA vaccine and they mm -hmm. just waited for the pandemic to figure it out, CBDCs, when, is, when the time will come of cutting rates to very negative rates to solve the next crisis, they will be there. So, as I said, somehow policymaking is fascinating because there are always new solutions that can be found. And, you know, like everybody, we studied economics and thought that the zero lower bound existed. So, <laughs> you know, cut rates lower than zero. That's why it's called zero lower bound. Guess what? It can exist. So, yeah. uh, in fact, now it's called effective lower bound because it's zero is not, it's just a number like any other. So, mm. uh, you know, when you think that policymakers have run out of solutions, yeah. they don't. All sorts of things. I, I remember during COVID when sort of the brief couple of days we had negative oil prices. Mm. Um, months after that, uh, there, there were some sort of really useful, I mean, I, I don't know them in detail, but sort of quite useful financial innovations that, that allowed sort of, you know, oil storage to be, you know, done in a certain way that I could prevent that happening, should there be, you know, massively low oil prices again, right? So I, I think these innovations are always a result of crisis, like you said, but a more traditional response, perhaps, to to, to the sort of upticking inflation, because that, that inflation number seems to be the only thing that business leaders are watching for the last year. Um, is, no, is it, is on, is on Thursday, we're having that, that Bank of yeah, England meeting uh, where we're, uh, you know, thinking about policy rates and stuff. You know, I know you did an interview talking about the ECB's policy rates recently. The Fed's going to think about that as well. Um, what, what should we expect? From the bank? So the bank has signaled quite um, clearly that um, they are ready to increase interest rates. Somehow even before QE um, finishes, because mm. QE, the QE program is expected to finish, is scheduled, in fact, to, to finish in December. And while we always thought that uh, the central bank shouldn't or couldn't increase rates while doing QE, they seem ready to do it. Now, it's just the, the very uh, uh, end tail of, of the program. So they can say is effectively finished. Nonetheless, in my opinion, and I know this is a normative rather than positive argument, nonetheless, I think it would be much better if the Bank of England waited mm. for the program to finish, give some time, and then increase rates. Mm. Because so that is so, it would be so much clearer for the market that there's a sequencing. You ease first, finish your easing, you wait a bit, and then if you want to start tightening again, you're free to do it. Increasing rates when you're still purchasing assets, which is an easing measure, I think it could be somehow confusing for the market. Even if you can say that you change your sequencing of exit strategy in August, even if in September you've been very hawkish, even if this, that the fact that this program ends in December has been said for months, so it's not really news and so on. All this is clear and said, but if central banks lose uh, predictability to some extent, if they mm. lose um, the um, logical con concatenation of arguments, they become much more obscure and much less understandable. And when they are less understandable, also the transmission mechanism of monetary policy becomes right. less effective. Because then market participants can say, should I look at rates or should I look at asset purchases? So which one is? Nonetheless, the yeah. DOE seems ready, having said all this, to increase rates in 
November, in fact, on balance, we think they will. And if they don't this month, they will do next month. So, you know, we are talking about nuances now. Um, it's a minuscule 15 basis point, just to bring it back to 25. Right. So it's not, we are not talking about the massive increase yet. It's a signal. It's an inversion of trend. And it would be entering the same segment where Norges Bank is or the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, which have, in fact, increased rates. And then people start thinking, okay, who's next after these two? And then Bank of England next after these three. And we know that eventually the Fed will. And eventually, you know. So you need to make sure that people understand that this is still a very low, sorry, slow and uh, cautious process. process. It will take um, uh, years for monetary policy to return to some form of normality. Um, But uh, also because the pandemic is not over, we are entering autumn and then winter season, demand yeah. new restrictions, new waves, new... So why rushing? There's no point. I mean, the, the cost of going too fast, too soon, mm. much, is way bigger of being late and too slow and too little. I mean, honestly, what's the, co- what's the most that can happen? People say inflation. You mentioned that. True. You need to make sure that people understand you're serious on inflation. Okay. But let's not forget, central banks can always kill inflation, always, at any point in time. That's easy. That's the job. It's been the job for centuries. They can always kill inflation if they want to. Mm. But the problem has been for the last 20 years to bring inflation up and not inflation down. The point is, what's the price of killing inflation? Do you kill the economy as well? That's what Volcker did in the 70s, when inflation was, in fact, to, uh, you know, mm. uh, 10, 15, 20%. Uh, that was a very bad period. Both you and I are too young to remember when <laughs> you used to sell your used car for a higher price of yeah. what you paid because of inflation. Yeah. You understand how detrimental this is to um, making economic decisions. It's really mo- the monetary illusion. You don't know what you're doing when there's so much inflation. Right. How is it possible that my used card is worth more in theory than the, the new card that I bought? So that's everything gets messed up. That's yeah. why inflation is so dangerous. That's why uh, and it's also the worst tax on the poorer. Mm. Of course, you need to fight inflation. But the question is after 20 years, 40 years of disinflation, 20 years of below target inflation, what's the problem of a couple of years of two, three, four percent inflation? Honestly. Nothing compared to the risk of killing the economy. Honestly, what's the risk? We're talking about millions of people who lost their jobs. We don't know when they're returning to work. The worst thing that can happen to them is an increase in energy price, an increase perhaps in the mortgages they are paying, and all the rest. Then you get squeezed from all sides. So central banks need to weigh all those risks at the same time. And I know they do it, but... uh, yeah. My suggestion is always be cautious. Inflation is one risk, but right. it's not the only risk. Right. And I think it's sort of quite related as well to what you alluded to before, which is with all these different forces playing around at the same time and creating confusion, I think fundamentally for years, banks and countries have been looking away, looking for a way to, uh, you know, find another tool in their system, you know, create monetary policy in a way that they can uh, sort of, you know, strategize a little bit more, have a bit more of that transmission mechanism to their favor. And I think that's led to, I think, the really exciting topic of central bank that sort of uh, digital currencies that I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you could give just a really quick intro to it, it would be great. But I think even more importantly, I went in one of your sort of pieces, you alluded to the really important role of money uh, as a store of information. And that's particularly perhaps the most redeeming factor or feature of, of CBDCs. Um, tell me a bit more about that and sort of how that connects to, you know, uh, states gaining more control over how they impact policy. Sure. So CBDCs, what are they? In theory, nothing particularly new, although it could be quite relevant if it happens. It's just another way of having a safe, public safe asset in people's wallets. Mm used to be gold, then used to be paper. There's nothing strange. It eventually becomes something that is a few numbers on a mobile phone. So in this respect, there's 
nothing particularly innovative. Clearly, there's something really new if you start having quite a sizable amount of them in the sense that you will start having as your daily bank, the central bank, as opposed to the commercial banks we are used to. So holding a deposit at the central bank is not exactly something we are used to. You know, they can increase efficiency and transparency and, uh, you know, transactions can happen instantaneously and so on and so forth. To some extent, is the right response to the evolution the, the, um, the emergence of uh, cryptos first and then stable coins, you know, all these sort of new ways of uh, creating, um, creating money. So the fact that you have the central bank reacting to that is absolutely normal. But the point is, once you create this new entity that enters everybody's wallet, maybe through their mobile phones, then you start introducing something really new. Because what's really behind cash is anonymity. That's why you say you pay the value to the bearer. In theory, in the olden days, yeah. you could go to the bank and ask for gold in return. Now, this is gone years and years ago after the collapse of Bretton Woods and um, effectively uh, uh, Richard Nixon's uh, decision of uh, and the convertibility of, of gold in dollars, that's totally on the window. But even before, it was actually more theoretical than practical. But in, in theory, you could. Then it became all fiat money and so on. But the, the good thing is that if we exchange cash, nobody knows that. Mm. And to some extent, that's a good, it could be a good thing because why should I be controlled for everything I do? It could be a bad thing if I do illegal activities with that. Um, with CBDCs, that disappears. Disappears because once two entities exchange this means of payment, you know exactly who these two entities are, when the transaction took place, where it took place, what was exchanged, and all the other things that are attached to that transaction. Like you can imagine, everything is reported electronically and so on and so forth. You can eventually make a list of things that a certain individual has purchased or sold. From a list of purchased, you can infer um, the preferences. That's what um, economists uh, uh, used, to, um, uh, used to say in terms of uh, revealed, as people call it, revealed preferences. Mm -hmm. It's not an a priori uh, kind of statement. I prefer apples to pears. Okay, no. But if I see that you constantly buy apples, you never buy pears, by revealed preference, I know what your, you know, what your taste is and so on and so forth. But then can, you can imagine you start having a list of the purchases you make. It can create a massively good profile. Mm. What you are as a person, this, the diseases you might have, the maybe your sexual orientation, maybe your religious convictions, maybe you know everything literally from an individual. So the amount of control that you can have with CBDCs, if you want to use it that way, could be massive, could be dramatic, could be really revolutionary. I'm not really sure this is where we want to go. And there are various ways the ACB is working on that, for example, on making sure that there's still a threshold by which if somebody wants to trace back what that transaction was, and so maybe the police, maybe God knows, that can be done. But ex ante, there's a threshold, keep it you know, 200 euros, 300 euros, 500 euros, 1,000 euros, whatever. Um, Example is not necessary. This information is not necessarily shared. However, it's probably stored somewhere and could be accessed by authorities. And so the question is, who's gonna make this decision? So the type of government that governs this process really matters. Mm -hmm. If it's democratic, you know that there is something you can do about it. It's not democratic. It's gonna choose whatever it is, if it's best. Unfortunately, unfortunately, 
it seems that um, um, CBDCs might be very suited for undemocratic governments just mm. to take control of all the transactions in the economy and therefore of all individual preferences and choices and so on and so forth. Right. And, and I mean, you said one of the notable things is, you know, th- there's a real first mover advantage in this space. Uh, and I mean, obviously, it's something like 80 percent of the world's central banks are testing these uh, sort of innovations. But a couple are really ahead there. China and Sweden come to mind. And particularly China is really out there because they've, they've tested these things. They've run tests in sort of, uh, you know, among, you know, uh, sort of a few thousand people in sort of smaller areas. And they have quite a few interesting features with them as well, in addition to just being digital. You know, there's the idea of expiring money, stimulus checks that can run out after a certain period of time. And I think that's yes. the sort of thing that just completely blows you know, all our current theories about, you know, fiscal and monetary policy just out of the water. Um, but I want to go back to that point you made about undemocratic governments having sort of proclivity to this sort of thing. Does it, does it worry you that, that, you know, if the first mover advantage is important, China right now seems like the first mover, uh, and all the sort of things we hear uh, from China in terms of human rights concerns, the Uyghur situation, the situation in Hong Kong, the situation with Taiwan, um, you know, the more data it gets on its citizens, the more authoritarian the regime becomes, that this will then just become another tool uh, of oppression, of tyranny. Does that does that concern you, or do you feel like it has enough sort of redeeming factors otherwise that make up for it? Um, no, you said uh, a number of interesting and relevant points and a number of correct things. By the way, just in, in brackets, not that really essential, and I'll go back to your question. This idea of expiring money, mm. it already it was initially adopted in the 19th century in the US in various ways of form. There were coupons that if you didn't use by a certain time. So, mm. you know, some, some of these innovative ideas, you know, date back uh, centuries almost. The point is, without the technology to, to really implement or enforce them, they remain bright ideas, but you know the scale remains small yeah. compared to what is needed. But technology can make it really large. You know, as I said before, you want to have negative rates. Good luck in a large economy where you can transact, change mm-hmm. currencies, go leave, change countries. You can do whatever you want. In small, in small settings, you can do that. In larger settings, it's virtually impossible. But if that becomes the legal tender and Potentially, at some point, the only legal tender, not together with others, but the only legal tender, well, then it becomes something that only technology can enable. Now, who's going to use this technology? Go back to your question. Well, the democratic nature of countries is absolutely essential because the more information you gather about the citizens, the more you want to be sure that the citizens are ultimately in control of who's using this information for what purposes. Now, China clearly has chosen a different pattern, uh, a different path. Yeah, already, of course, after World War II, they became what they are today. Um, and again, with the change of the constitution that made Xi Jinping effectively president for life, is another step towards reduced democratization of the political processes as opposed to increased democratization, so to speak, although that has always been a false hope, if you want, by Western leaders. They thought, ah, as the country becomes richer, they will also want to have more political freedoms and so on. But that's not how China works and operates historically. Mm. You know, democracies are grown and they succeed on those countries that historically have a democratic tendency. And even in those cases, uh, they might not work or fail. I mean, think about Greece that invented democracy, of course. They had the, their own juntas and they had their own coups and they had their own... So, effectively, yeah. right? so uh, it's not that just because it's Greece, you're always going to have a democratic government. So imagine in those countries that never experienced, never had democracy in their, in their history, and then you try to impose it somehow. And this is when it's getting really scary, I think. We have studied um, recently with a couple of uh, important papers from Mirko Giordani that, as you know, you mentioned and interviewed in the past. We have looked at Southeast Asia, the, the situation of democracies there, and, and they are literally fading away. I mean, honestly, 
it feels like those countries tried this experiment. It really didn't work out for them. And they are down scaling back on the rock, democracy mm-hmm. returning to a more, much more authoritarian type of regime, being military governments, being authoritarian regimes, the euro or the fact that it doesn't matter. You know, even India, who's been for, for decades the largest democracy in the world and somehow functioning, however corrupt it was, inefficient, and you name it, right? Mm. But it was there. Now, in the modern theory, the, the democracy is there, but clearly mm. the means of governments are becoming much more authoritarian in the way they are implemented and the, 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 the way the government operates and so on and so forth. The nationalistic approach, the challenges to in Kashmir and that. So, you know, mm. it's... Uh, um, and and could I just say is a tendency I mean, in the world that democracies are fading away in a few decades. They mm. number of democratic countries will really be very, very, very small. Yeah, I was going to add to that. Initially, I think those two things are very, very interlinked as well because you know, in, in China, there's a time when GDP used to go at nine percent, right? And 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 that was always seen as you know, as long as it goes sort of nine percent, eight percent, you know, the, the, that that's what the public needs to sort of stay under uh, whatever auspices of you know uh, reduced freedoms and, and reduced democratic rights, right? They're happy if the economy keeps growing at that rate. As soon as we've seen that sinking, you know, twenty fifteen onwards to six to seven, uh, maybe to five during COVID, and much lower than that. Um, you know, we, I think we've simultaneously seen a much larger nationalistic uh, uproar, whether that's, you know, again, the sort of situations that it's involved in, in in Hong Kong and Taiwan or just the way that she's cracking down within the CP, uh, in the, within the CCP. And I, I think that, that that sort of theme carries over in India, carries in other countries. And that's what makes me particularly worried about, you know, the economic impact of COVID is like, obviously, it has an economic impact. But what about the associated Move, you know, and sympathy for authoritarianism that that comes with that, um, and and you know, and particularly in the way that you know CBDCs might might enable that in in the future. Well, let me just ask you, sort of more specific to that. I mean, all, all these sounds like you know, particularly revolutionary things. But how far off are we? Like, if, if you had to sort of have an idea of you know, at some point. Uh, you know, there'd be one first mover. At some point, this would be one of many other legal tenders. At some point, become the only legal tender, perhaps. What really is the probability of that? And what sort of, in terms of years, time frame are we looking at? Yeah. Um, first of all, on the first mover advantage, the point is, first of all, if you move first, you, you can clearly ex- ex- exploit some of the you know, uh, space available in many respects, including if you want to export your CBDC in the sense that mm. not many countries or not all countries will have to want their uh, CBDC. They may just simply too complicated to manage, to create, mm. to distribute, and so on. So somebody can come with a package, okay, and say, look, I'll do everything for you. I'll do your infrastructure, material and immaterial. Mm. I would build bridges, I would do everything, and uh, I'll manage your currency reserves. I'll, I'll give you the central bank digital currency that you're not going to be able to do yourself. That's a package. And take it or leave it. Or, or, it's, very, or it's, very, it's simply very convenient and cheap for you. Yeah. And at that point, you can imagine that could be a very attractive offer. And of course, it's much easier that offer is much easier to be made either to very weak governments or to very authoritarian governments that they don't have to ask anybody, but if they see their own convenience, they'll do it. So that's when we need to be a bit scared and also we need to be fast. We shouldn't let only one CBDC being out there, only a really big one. We need to have a serious event, which is the reason why I was pleased to see that um, the discussion on the digital euro is is underway um, and clearly the the elephant in the room the missing elephant in the room if you want is the dollar where's the digital dollar why nobody's really speaking about it now it is in fact is working boston fed with the mit are working on the digital dollar and of course 
we are in the best possible hands considering that is the MIT that might be developing the technology. So in that aspect, but politically, I think they are slightly behind other countries because they see well, why should I do that? I got a dollar, I got all the information advantage I got. So why should I go in that direction? But eventually they go there. And if you ask me about the time frame, um, I think the first large-scale CBDCs are going to be launched relatively soon, maybe next year, maybe the next couple of years. This is starting from China and other countries. But then within five years, I would suppose most countries will have created and adopted mm. their digital currencies in some form. And um, by 10 years, I would say at most, they might become the only legal tender accepted in, in countries. Unless, of course, some pretty solid movements emerge and say, look, I really can't go that way. I really cannot give up my privacy. I really want to make sure that I still have space for doing something without the government knowing it. I mean, mm. there could be those kind of movements um, emerging at some point. Mm. A rebellion against technology right. per se and the pervasiveness of technology. And, you know, that could be a theme for the decades to, um, to come. In the past, technology gave us freedom. In the future, it may be the prison we are in because unless you do something electronically. But you think, think but you mentioned correctly COVID. COVID was really scary. COVID is a way of establishing forms of controls that we haven't seen for decades in democratic societies. You had to stay home. There were curfew. You cannot meet people. You cannot meet people in other people's homes. Uh, you can do gatherings. I mean, all these things generally happen, really, in undemocratic regimes and democratic times. Now, in this case, they were necessary means for a very limited period of time in which you understand that you need to use masks, you, you cannot gather with many people. If you had to stop the spreading of a virus, there are restrictions that need to be accepted and the lockdowns and all the rest. And I think they were the right measures to be adopted for a very limited uh, period of time. Because the point is, after a while then, you get used to the fact that the government wants to know who you are with, when you're traveling, Mm. Whether you're sick, whether you're healthy, and uh, that's that's too much. It needs to be to a very, very limited period, which is the reason why I think this push on vaccine is good because they might not be as effective as um, even the pharmaceuticals houses make it, um, or even governments believe they are. In fact, now the people are talking about the booster job and the third injection, maybe the maybe fourth at some point. God knows, right? But the point is. If they help reducing, first of all, the health hazard, but secondly, also the control, the government's hand of citizens after they've been given their vaccination, that's actually a good thing because, you know, it's too precious to have those kind of freedoms and liberties and not be controlled in everything we do. So there might be a movement at some point where people say, look, wait a minute, I, I really... I just, that's way too much for me. I, you know, I check out, which is the reason why people, some people believe that the cryptos will never really die because there will be always some mm. uh, uh, antagonistic or ideological fringes that would say, mm. look, this system is gone totally out of control. I want to be out of the system. I want to have my means of payments. I want to have my own, you know. Mm. Libertarians to the rescue. Yeah, yeah, that could could be one of the explanations. Forget about the the illegal ways they are used. That, that that's a different matter. I mean, but even the proponents of CBDCs, they believe that cryptos might never go to zero in terms of value because there will always be somebody that says cryptos are no government. I don't want to have so much government in my life and so on and so forth. I'm not judging. I'm just right. saying what um, what the arguments are out there. Interesting. And, and so just while you were talking about sort of first mover advantage, I sort of, the idea came up to me. I mean, is there such a thing as a last mover advantage? Because we've mm. seen throughout history that the role of certain assets 
are underpinned by the relation to you know other ones, right? So gold is really important. Why? Because people flocked to gold when the dollar was down. Uh, and I mean, obviously, increasingly, you're seeing sort of that relationship unwinding a little bit. But I think the point still holds in that uh, if we have society that's sort of, you know, collectively over the next half century moving towards CBDCs, uh, you know, is, is there uh, an opening then for for a formidable alternative for, you know, that those sort of ideological fringes, which will now probably be lots, you know, sort of amplify that? Um, you know, as sort of reasonable alternative, that might be the dollar, that might be, you know, a, a proper physical fiat currency from another country, it might be Bitcoin, it might be some, you know, physical commodity like gold. Um, but, but does it almost necessarily create an alternative once you have CBDCs? Yeah, so uh, last mover advantage. So the point is, historically, uh, there's something that has been called something that the advantage of the of the late commons or something, in the sense that imagine that you're a very poor country in a very poor continent, uh, and um, you want to have uh, phones. Um, if you go through the adoptions of all technologies, and you have cables everywhere, then you have to build the infrastructure for just the enhanced telegraphy was at the beginning and so on and so forth. After 10 iterations, you get to mobile phones. But the late comments might say, why should I do all the pain and all the cost of, of the, let's go straight to mobile phones. And then you build the antennas, you give everybody a very cheap device and that's it. You've got phones mm-hmm. in the country, okay? That's always been the case. That's, that's the advantage of the late commerce is called because they save the cost that have been made by the first commerce because they kind of they discovered the technology, so they may get some of the advantages by also have to make all the investment right. that keep them on the frontier, if you want, of the technology. And often they take stages entirely, right? So they're exactly. a famous example of going straight to mobile phones. And exactly, exactly. Right. Okay, so this could be this could be well be the case again for these technologies we are talking about. Um, the, my suspicion is that um, in this in today's world, being first outweighs the benefits of coming late because. Establishing standards, having others adopting your standards mm. as a clear geopolitical advantage because you create the circle of friends. So the problem is, um, or allies, call it as you want. The point is, in this, can, in this century where these fears of influence are returning after globalization, so there's the sphere of influence of China, there's the sphere of influence of the US, God knows where there will be other spheres of influence, maybe Russia, God knows. Um, but in this period where spheres of influence are returning, being first and being able to say, ah, I got the standard, please adopt it because that's very convenient for you, helps a lot. Helps a lot because you, you could provide a kind of package that I mentioned before. Say, look, you get everything and you just, open the package, there's nothing else you can possibly ask. If you cannot make that kind of argument, then it's much, much harder to convince people on the back of pure ideological uh, arguments. Think about Mm. the 5G technology. China had it adopted by virtually every country in the world who wanted to be top of the technology until the US came in and said, oh, that's a backdoor for the Chinese government to spy on your computers or something. And at the point, it had to scale back. Most countries had to scale back their investment in a Chinese 5G, mm-hmm. even if that 5G was way better and way cheaper than everybody else in the world. Yeah. For pure ideological reasons, right? And that could be applied to so many other instances. So that's why I'm saying that... Um, uh, uh, the, and why was it hard for the US to make that argument? Because they didn't have an alternative technology. They couldn't say, yeah, stop adopting Huawei and 5G. Like, like, yeah. Take mine. That's better and cheaper. No, they didn't have, so they had to go through an ideological argument, either with me or against me, in this new world of spheres of influence, 
you cannot be in both sides and so on, you have to choose. But that's a weak argument, or in any case, it's much harder to buy when there are huge economic interests behind. So yet somehow they made it and now we are where we are and this disruption of global supply mm. chains that have been emerged, well, let's put it this way, that have been noticed recently, but actually it's a phenomenon we first discussed maybe a couple of years ago, totally un unnoticed, but it was already there. The balkanization of supply chains has been there for mm. at least the last two or three years. Now clearly the pandemics made it worse, but as a phenomenon has started already at least two, three years ago, maybe more, when the trade war between US and China started, when Huawei and ZTE and other mm -hmm. type of cases came out. And, uh, and it's not going to get better. If anything, it might be one of the factors underpinning uh, much, well, let's say structurally higher inflation down the line. Right. Now, we, we've, we've talked about sort of plenty of disruptions, plenty of quite grim and and uh, worrying trends, but just to sort of as a just to end off on a slightly more optimistic note for now, the CBDCs, the bank meetings, the G20, is there anything that kind of stands out to you as something that makes you optimistic about sort of the, the you know, macroeconomic situation unfolding over the next year? Yeah, yeah, well, when we worry about things, I mean, it's our job, right, in the sense that we need to highlight risks out, out there and that it's not what we hope that things happen or anything like that. It's just mm -hmm. we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't scan the horizon and, and say, look, these are the risks. Right. Uh, the other thing is history is, is, uh, or, uh, plain, has plenty of examples in which something seemed unconceivable until it became mm -hmm. again, history two days later. So, and that's... And, and then after it happens, people say, ah, how could no, no one could see it coming? Well, okay, so we don't want to run that risk. Mm -hmm. uh, second, um, uh, to some extent, we are already in a much better place on a number of fronts, in a sense that technology is enabling transformations that have been uh, unconceivable until just a few years, uh, just a few years ago, I would say, and uh, um, people can do things that were unimaginable, and all this development in in tech, in biotech, in uh, medicine, in you know, these are all things that are making people's lives much better. Even I mentioned the vaccines before. I mean, the previous pandemic of this scale, the Spanish flu, killed between. 1,500 millions in the world. Here we are five, clearly one person is one too many. I'm not saying, but statistically speaking, epidemiologically speaking, is one-tenth of the lower estimate of the Spanish flu. It means that somehow the technology that we have developed has worked. Now, some of the initial measures were astonishingly old-fashioned because Quarantine comes from quarantena, that is uh, the Venetian practice of keeping these uh, um, sailors for quaranta, which means 40 days, when they came from countries where the plague was or other diseases. Social distancing uh, or self-isolation, you know, fancy English names, but uh, if you uh, read the uh, the Cameron by Boccaccio, which was written in 1200, that's exactly what uh, the, the, um, the main characters of the book do. There were 10 people, 10 men and women in a villa in the Florentine hills, just stay in self-isolation from, from Florence and this movement from the city to the country. Something that seems so new to us has been there for centuries. So some of the initial reactions were quite anachronistic in my sense. Oh my goodness, I said, is it, is it possible we haven't made any progress in the last 700 years or something? Um, but then actually we showed that technology, as I said, was there to help us to find a solution 
at a really, really fast speed. I mean, developing a vaccine in under a year or just uh, just over a year is is astonishing. And clearly, they might not be as effective as we hope. You might need the boost to see. There might be some mild mi- mi- side effects and so on. But let's think about the counterfactual. If we haven't done that, when the Delta variant appears, which is thousand, no, twice, three times, thousands times more infectious for the high uh, uh, respiratory apparatus. I mean, you can't imagine without that kind of vaccination campaigns, mm. it would have been you know, disastrous. Yeah. Exactly. So, and that's what gives me some form of hope. Now, like every instrument, you can use it well and you can use it badly. If you use it badly, it will create bad consequences. But that that's not a reason not to have mm. it at our disposal. That's why we need to back to be, I think, tech optimist to some extent, being aware of the risk that technology brings, like every other instrument that is invented by the human beings. Brilliant. I'm glad we're ending on that cheerful note, Brunello. Incredibly fascinating discussion and, and certainly leaving me with a lot to think about. But no, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much to you for having me and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Fantastic. And that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.